We make long-term decisions based on short-term feelings. The short-term feeling is, oh my God, this guy is my soulmate. And then I ask everybody, think of the person you have the most chemistry with in your entire life. Think of the three people you have the most in chemistry with in your entire life. And they, they, they mentally imagine that person. Where's that guy now? Did you end up with him? Did it work out well? Did it have a happy ending? The answer is always no. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast, a place for conversations the way we often used to have them. Unfiltered, unapologetic, I'd say unrecorded, but two out of three is not bad. I'm Megan Daum. My guest this week is dating coach Evan Mark Katz. That's right, a dating coach. I know that may seem a little odd, given that so far on this show, I've been interviewing writers, scientists, academics, and the like. But given that the purpose of this podcast is to talk about things in ways that might really enhance our understanding, if only we were allowed to talk about them that way, I thought Evan and his approach to his work fit the bill. Evan only coaches women looking for men, and he has been called a personal trainer for smart, strong, successful women, meaning a personal dating trainer. He is the author of four books, and he's the creator of Love You, a six-month video course that helps women understand men and find love and has some 12,000 graduates. Evan spoke with me back in May from his home in Los Angeles. On that note, I will say, and I think this is the last time I'm going to have to say this, this was an early recording for this podcast, back when the sound was a little bit analogish. So one day, these interviews will be the hip and cool ones, the vinyl ones, the basement tapes, so enjoy them while you can. I began our interview by asking Evan what kind of dating coach he was and why he sometimes takes a tough love approach to his clients. Basically, uh, I would bill myself as a reality-based dating coach, uh, which is to say, I don't traffic in fantasy how things should be, how men should act, how women should act if we were in control of the world and waved a magic wand. And it almost doesn't matter what I think, in other words. I, I try to use science and data and you know, just even anecdotal observations about if I do X, he will do Y to create best practices for people who are trying to make healthier long-term relationship choices. And sometimes are there are inherent contradictions in what we're attracted to versus what's good for us and what comes naturally to us and what's going to produce the best possible outcome. And so my job is to help manage people's uh, expectations and understanding of the opposite sex and tell women, you don't have to fundamentally change to find your Mr. Right, you may have to change your choice of Mr. Right to find someone who fits better for you. And that, again, opens up a, a whole line of interesting conversation. So I've heard a sort of logic that the women's movement was great for a very small percentage of men. The women's movement was great for men who were educated, who were high achieving, who were tall, successful, like go down the list. And what it did was uh, make an enormous pool of less successful, less high status, less tall, et cetera, men basically more alone than, than they've ever been. There used to be women for those men to date, but because women don't necessarily have to get married right away, if at all, women, they don't need men for financial support. There are all sorts of structures that were taken away or blown up by the emergence of feminism that has really sort of shortchanged a pretty large swath of, of less high achieving men. So I wonder if that's something you've thought about and what you might have to say to that. No, I, I, and I think that's where we get into um, sticky controversial ground because we talk about un uncomfortable truths. Yeah, that, that is the case. Now, again, they're not my clients, so I'm not, you know, I'm not boots on the ground talking to those guys. But just this morning, I got a comment on my blog from some guy who is, you know, really just blaming women for their own plight. And so how do we have a reasonable conversation around this where we say we can just observe like Twitter and Facebook were created to connect the world? The downside of it is everything that we're seeing right now, but it was not the intention of it. Right. So the the intention of second wave feminism, where women have equal opportunity and, and very often equal outcome to men, and often in some areas exceed in terms of college degrees, master's degrees, what men are doing, 
has uh, left this gap, whereas you pointed out, women don't need men anymore to support them. They become more independent. And to use a term, not my term, but to use a term, women have become more masculine. Mm -hmm. And that strength that allows them to stand on their own and do what you do and go out and, and kill it in the real world and renovate a house you know, this is not our parents' generation. <laughs> Wait, but we need men to renovate the house. That's the dirty secret there. But yes, okay. <laughs> and people like me pay other people to do it because I'm pretty useless in my hand. So a friend, friend of mine once said that nothing scares a man uh, away more than a single woman with an old house. <laughs> always need That's a repair man. So what do you think makes people angry with you? Where are the places where people get irritated with your approach or? think that you're sexist or like, how, how does that come up? Um, I think, and, and you know this even better than I do. If you don't say anything, no one could have a problem with you. If you're, if you're so afraid of speaking, you know, you won't make much of a mark in the world. You, you, you'll never have anything to say and you could hide. For me, whatever I say, someone's going to have a hard time with, especially if it personally indicts them. I, would, I hope you feel the same way. It's why I, I'd like to think I'm doing a good job, because if I'm pissing off men on the far right who think that I am just some huckster who's trying to make a buck off of lonely middle-aged women who are past their sell-by date, and that they call me a mangina and a white knight. Really? Okay. Right. So no one wants to be personally indicted. And again, that's why it mirrors the political conversation so much. You know, no one wants to, to look in the mirror, have the finger pointed at them. And I'm, I'm an equal opportunity finger pointer. Right. And my metric is not, is this right or wrong? It's always, is this effective or ineffective? Is this helping me do better with the opposite sex or is it getting in my way? So a guy who says, you know, it's not fair that women should be courted in this day and age when women make as much money. So when I go on a first date, I'm not going to pay. I can understand the intellectual argument. It's a very ineffective dating strategy. I think we could agree. <laughs> yeah. Just an ineffective, ineffective dating strategy, but we can, we can understand why. We can understand the motive behind it. So, I mean, this gets back to this sort of naturalistic fallacy idea. The idea that just because something is true and that we're acknowledging it as true means that it's right or good. So let's take something like the biological clock. I mean, that is something that, you know, for a couple decades there, women were just pretending didn't exist. Uh, you know, we, yep. often, we often hear the phrase, oh, well, feminism sold women a bill of goods. We were told that we could put off childbearing indefinitely and that we could have the big career. You could have it all. I think at one point, Oprah came along and said, well, you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. Oprah, who mm -hmm. famously does not have children, did not want children, has done a whole lot of things, you know, probably because she didn't have children. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that comes up in your in your conversations. I mean, it's something with your clients, because it's something as a person who, you know, I did not want to have children and I and I don't have them. So I get asked to talk about the subject of making this choice a lot. Mm -hmm. And there have been times I remember I was doing a podcast interview one time with some people who were very friendly to the idea of not having kids by choice. And, you know, they asked me, well, you know, but people always say, oh, your biological clock is ticking. You know, what are you going to do? And I said, well, the biological clock exists. It's absolutely is ticking. You have to acknowledge it. And that part of the interview got cut out. <laughs> wow. It was like they didn't want to hear it. And wow. it just points to this thing that happens where to say, to acknowledge the truth of something that is unfair, which in this case it is, it is unfair that women only have a certain yeah. amount of time to do this. It's unfair that we have to do it in the first place and that it takes up a lot of resources, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist and that we can socially engineer it out of society. So I wonder if that comes up with your clients or do they just, they want to have kids. So you're sort of past that conversation. Talk about that. No, it happens all the time. It happened yesterday. And it's fascinating. And I've, I've written extensively about this. And there's, I've got friends who are wonderful resources. Andrea Sirtash has a site called Pregnantish. She's a dating and relationship expert who, you know, tried to get pregnant for 10 years, struggled. Amy Klein, I don't know if you know Amy, but she wrote the, you know, pregnancy blog for the New York Times. And she just has a new book out called The, Cry the Trying Game. 
So this is like a real thing. And when people don't have facts, they just have feelings. The conversation it goes awry. I mean, I remember being on a talk show once with a woman who was in her 40s who said she was, you know, wasn't ready to have kids yet. But because she's in great shape, therefore her ovaries are in great shape. She believed this. <laughs> Right. I look uh -oh. good for my age. I work out all the time. So my ovaries are in great shape. And wow. It's amazing that somebody would think that now. It's incredible. But women's own fertility, I mean, again, it's my job to know, know this on, on, on their behalf. So yesterday, I, you know, there's a client who's 42 and wants to have her own biological children. And I had to. I had no choice. I was, my responsibility to her was to bring up not the pill, but plan B. What if we don't find a guy to marry you? in the next six months and start trying to impregnate you, what are we going to do? Right. And she started to ball because this is the thing that she's been, you know, so laser focused on having her own biological children. And it's not a right or wrong, but in my opinion, the, the order is find a man who wants to start a family with you together, figure out how you do it. Maybe he already has a kid. Maybe you go surrogacy. Maybe you go IVF. Maybe you go adoption, but together you can build that life. Instead of turning this into this, this really narrow window that we have to nail in the next six months for your whole big plan to succeed. And so I think I'm just not afraid of having that conversation because my North Star, and again, I think yours is too, is, is telling the truth. Whatever, wherever the truth leads, I'm, I'm willing to do that. And I'm generally, not exclusively, but generally not afraid to take the arrows that come with that. You know, there was definitely a sense when I was in my 20s my social circles, that if you were going to settle down, if you were even thinking about having children, if this was something that you were worried about before you were, say, 30, 32, that you just weren't like a cool person. You didn't deserve to call yourself a, a feminist. You just were not. You were sort of unserious. There was a real stigma around uh, prioritizing domestic life. And granted, that was, you know, in a pretty specific social circle. I was living in New York City. I was working in media and publishing, but people in media and publishing sort of set the tone for the culture. And so I do think this was a message that was pretty prevalent in 1980s, 1990s. Do you see that that has changed? Are, are young women more informed other than the client that you just mentioned, but are, are, do they generally tend to be uh, sort of less embarrassed about this stuff than we were, than I was anyway? Um, my perception is that it's worse than it was. Really? Yeah. There's just a lot more fantasy now. I have uh, friends. I don't want to be too specific because I don't want to you know, out anybody, but I've got a group of friends who are millennial influencer types, 30 to 35, and they're superstars and they got big Instagram followings and they travel around the world and they have spent a total of zero time thinking about this. Really? They're too busy. They're too busy. Um, making their mark, changing the world, which again, God bless them. It's across 35 and men, men will perceive you differently because if they want to have kids, it's not a great bet to be with someone. And again, I say this as a guy who married a 30, a woman who was a month from turning 39, but it's definitely a lot harder. So if I, if I were giving, you know, unsolicited blanket advice, I'd say, start taking your love life seriously in your late twenties, you know, 28, 29, and really make it a priority the way you'd make um, getting a master's education a priority right. or, you know, uh, advancing in your career, make it a co-priority from 30 to 35, because if you start taking it seriously at 35, it's just a lot harder as the dating pool narrows. And that's, again, there's no moral judgment in that. And there's no, certainly Megan, there's no moral judgment for someone who says, I don't want to be part of that rat race. You know, I want to find love, but I don't want to have a family. Great. Takes a lot of pressure off. But if you do want it, don't put it off. And it's, it's no different than you know, saving money in a 401k instead of waking up one day and discovering you can't retire. Right. Have you found that egg freezing has changed this equation at all? Mm, I think in women's minds, it's changed the equation. Um, I don't think it's changed the equation much for men. And I think that's, that gap is important and nobody's talking about that gap. So I've had women come to me, so, you know, and I write people's online dating profiles and, you know, really give them a the whole makeover, make them you know, uh, universally you know, desirable to men and show them how to flirt. And I mean, it's a full service organization. <laughs> okay. This is where people are going to start getting pissed off, making them universally desirable to men, showing them how to flirt. Well, we'll circle back to that, but keep, okay. Keep going. <laughs> I'll tell you about that. 
I'm, I'm glad to, but I know that's not what we're here for. Oh, we're here for everything. No, keep going. I've had my eggs frozen. Should I put that in my profile? Like she, she sees this as this great asset. You don't have to worry. We don't have to rush. She sees this as like the, the great insurance policy, the escape hatch. Right. Guys don't see that. The guys still want to marry, like date someone for two years, live together for six months, get engaged, get married, settle down, buy a house, travel, and then start having kids. Okay, but why is not having eggs in the bank just a helpful piece of that equation? It is, but but think of it this way. Like, if you're a man and there's two identical twin sisters, or maybe it's not even identical twin sisters, one of them is is fertile now, the other one is older but has eggs frozen, you're going to go for the person who does not need to, you know, uh, unfreeze, unfreeze. All things are really equal. It's, it, yes, you're better than your, your, your competition if you're a 42-year-old woman with frozen eggs, but you're not competing against 42-year-old women. You're competing against 35-year-old women. Good point. Right? So it doesn't make much of a difference to the guy who, especially if he's you know, a quality guy, he's going to have choice. And that's, that's the uncomfortable truth that you know, women think, oh, well, this, this is going to give me great new life. It creates possibility, but it doesn't change the fact that a 42-year-old woman with frozen eggs is rarely a guy's plan A. And that's what, again, no one talks about that. So what are the other things that people don't talk about enough, in your opinion? Gosh, um, <laughs> I love the conversation about chemistry. I love the conversation about money. I think those are two really like cool rabbit holes, <laughs> which could suck up uh, a lot of time. You think people overvalue chemistry? I think chemistry is not a predictor of anything other than chemistry. Chemistry is brain chemistry. It's dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, right? It's like being drunk or being high lights up the same pleasure centers of the brain as meth and coke. So the high high doesn't sustain itself, right? Hedonic adaption, right? Your new car is really exciting at the beginning. And then six months later, it's just your car. The same goes for <laughs> boyfriends and husbands. No one wakes up next to someone after 10 years, really, really excited to hear what they have to say. There's not really a precedent for that. So we make long-term decisions based on short-term feelings. The short-term feeling is, oh my God, this guy is my soulmate, right? And then I ask everybody, think of the person you have the most chemistry with in your entire life. Think of the three people you have the most in chemistry with in your entire life. And they, they, they mentally imagine that person. Where's that guy now? Did you end up with him? Did it work out well? Did it have a happy ending? The answer is always no, if you're coming to me. So Evan, who do you worry more about as a gender? Are you more worried about the state of men or the state of women? That's an amazing question because I never thought about it. I never, like, I never thought about it until right this second. My reflexive reaction is men. Because there is discussion around that. I mean, it is, you know, there is a, a line of inquiry. Hannah Rosen's book, the, the End of Men, Christina Hoff Summers' work, The War on Boys, this sort of thing, that, that men are really suffering. We're not talking about the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. I'm not talking sure. about tech billionaires. But, you know, by and large, you take any given population, the women are going to be better educated. They're going to be owning their real estate uh, mm -hmm. more than men do. They're going to just be sort of on with their lives. And, and a lot of that is because they don't need a man to have kids anymore. They don't, they're not reliant right. upon men or actually even, I, I mean, this is another thing that I feel like doesn't get explored. If any given person wants to have a family, a woman can do that by herself and a man cannot. At least it's not it, in, until it becomes the norm for a single man to like hire a surrogate. He really doesn't have as many options. The, the average man does not have nearly the options that the average woman has. And so there is a real, I think, robust discussion around how men are suffering and failing. And as a result, a lot of women are feeling like they don't have partners. But I, I wonder how this sort of metabolizes in, in your thinking. No, I, I, again, I think they're, they're all really good points. And so the problem is that we tend to, no matter who you are, you look more closely at your own pain rather than acknowledging someone else's. It happens in marriages. You pay attention to the things that you did, that you sacrificed, but you don't know what your partner necessarily, how they shut up and sacrifice for you. We all pay attention to our own story. And so 
I want to remove my bias as best I can because I'm, again, I'm not really part of that world. I'm very happily married and financially secure and, and I'm, I recognize how lucky I am. But I think if I were to just say one gender is prone to suffering more, it's, it's going to be men. And I have, I'm of two minds. So there's the stuff that you talked about, which is, you know, sort of political. Why, why shouldn't a man be able to adopt a baby if he can provide for that baby, et cetera? Like, that's interesting. And I also want them to take responsibility to some degree. If men are falling behind, it's somewhat on men to pick themselves up too. And so again, I don't want to, I don't want to be forgiving of the fact that women tend to show more discipline in studying and uh, are less likely to go to jail and um, become alcoholics and all those things. But men are also falling behind because industry is changing the jobs that would value the physical strengths that less educated men could typically bring are being phased out. They're going to have to pivot. They're going to, I mean, that's the, the point is, I, I agree with you that men are suffering worse. And the thing I mentioned earlier, which I feel strongly about, even as, you know, where I'm in life is just the loneliness of being a man. Men just are not great at friendship, not great at community, not great at expressing vulnerability, not great at getting help. So I think men silently suffer and see them. They have no one to share with and nothing to fall back on. And if, they, if you're a man and you don't have a job, um, you feel worthless. And I suppose that, that that's the case for many women as well, but men, because women still see men as protectors and providers, I think those men are, are suffering at a, at a greater scale with less to buoy them in hard times. So this gets to a question. You have said that dating apps are great for men. They have been a great thing for men. Do you mean that they're not as great for women? Yes. And there's something that's um, paternalistic about saying that, and I, which is why I don't like the way it sounds. But technology, is, again, is meant to solve certain problems. And so online dating came around in the mid 90s. I was an early adopter of it and wrote my first book about it. And I think it's a, it's a good medium. It's an imperfect medium, as everybody will point out. But you post some photos, you write an essay, you answer some short answer questions, you check off a bunch of boxes, you email back and forth. If the emailing goes well, maybe you schedule a phone call, maybe you schedule a date. There's an arc of courtship there, right? Where people can get to know each other, screen each other, build up some trust and rapport. With dating apps, you've taken away the content, right? So it's no profiles, no emailing. It's pretty photo, swipe right, text, meet. And so it's this sort of shooting fish in a barrel, instant gratification based on only shallow stuff. And so everybody becomes disposable. Why should you ever stop? If you could swipe right and guys gamify the whole thing, they swipe right on any woman who's halfway attractive. So I swiped right on a thousand women. What does that mean? Nothing. There's no real connection. Right. So you're talking about the apps versus online dating. You're talking about Tinder versus Match. Very specifically, I'm, I don't want to say anti, because once again, it sounds like I'm attacking it and everybody who's using it, and I'm not. They, there's good people who do it. I think the medium creates a certain problem. I think dating apps and swiping and having infinite choice with no real interaction is a problem. And I think texting is a real problem for relationships as well. Oh. It's a primary form of communication. To get to know someone, it's a terrible form of communication as a means of, of solving problems, terrible form of communication. And it's the one that people rely on the most. They're afraid to actually talk to each other and have real conversation. Yeah, I have to say, as a, as a writer and as a word person, I often think that if texting had, and messaging had been around when I was a teenager, my whole life would be different. I would have been so fun and flirtatious and I would have taken <laughs> risks. I would have been clever. Like I would have been super popular with guys <laughs> just because I'm so I'm really good at that. But uh, mm -hmm. I see what you're saying. I do have a tendency to to hide behind it with anybody, not just in, in romantic situations. But I think it's it's tempting for those of us who like words. So Evan, I'm going to run a hypothesis by you, and it has to do with the question of sexual consent. So, you know, a couple of years ago, when I was following a lot of the debate around campus sexual assault policies and just the way these complaints were adjudicated, I was very much in the camp of these kids need to just chill out about having all these strict rules about consent, this idea of affirmative consent, where you have to say yes, 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 every step of the way in foreplay. Can I touch you here? Can I touch you there? 
I just thought it was sort of infantilizing. I now have come around to the idea that these generations have to deal with so many conditions that our generation did not. You know, you and I did not grow up with Tinder. We did not grow up with ubiquitous online pornography. We had our own challenges, but I think that we just were able to figure out how to deal with in-person sexual and social negotiations in a way that maybe doesn't come as naturally to these other generations. And frankly, I've just decided it's it's none of our business how they want to handle it. And so I've kind of just stopped having an opinion about it. Um, but then I've also been criticized by other people of our generation for going too soft on them. So I wonder if this comes up in your practice and if you have different kinds of conversations with older women uh, than you do with younger women. A really useful question. I'm a little surprised to hear your evolution on it, although I think I think any evolution is is pretty cool. Uh, the idea that you don't have an opinion on it and let them do whatever they want. It may not work for you, but if it works for them, that's fine. I think live and let live is largely a, a good policy. I haven't evolved <laughs> as, as you have. I still find it uh, infantilizing, something that people have been largely uh, successfully negotiating non-verbally over the years. And as you know, that doesn't make me a rape apologist or... Oh, and I want to be clear. I'm not talking about right. how we're defining assault. I'm not saying that if somebody makes you feel uncomfortable, you can accuse them of sexual misconduct. That's a separate category. I'm just talking about the affirmative consent. I will say this. I'm Gen X. I'm, I'm not boomer. I'm not millennial. And I certainly don't want to be obsolete <laughs> yet. And sometimes in these conversations, you, you know, uh, there, there, there's a, a, a subsection of people who think, you know, your, your views are outdated. Oh, we're, you know, you and I are going to be the people who are still saying, you know, Oriental. <laughs> like, I, I don't feel like that person yet. But I, I haven't come around to that apart from the recognition. We talk about being a reality-based dating coach. The recognition that 20% or so of the, the population does believe in this form of affirmative consent. and. The clash between the people who do and the people who don't is going to invariably cause more problems. Maybe the, you know those ratios are going to are going to flip. But I, as a parent, I do worry about that. Again, I, I even hate saying this out loud because obviously I should worry about sexual predators in my daughter. I worry about my son because I think you know if if I put myself in the shoes of where we are right now, uh, and most of my sexual encounters have been involving alcohol and nonverbal communication. Again, I don't think I've done anything wrong uh, that I would regret that anybody could hold me to account for. But, you know, there was an, an, I wrote on my blog about a, a New York state law that criminalizes any sexual interaction where there was, there was alcohol. If, if, right, the woman, right. if the woman decides that, you know, after the fact that there was, that he went too far and there was alcohol involved, then he should, he should have known. And it's the kind of stuff that I do think is infantilizing. And, and we've talked about it. You know, Emily Yaffe writes eloquently about this. Laura Kipnis's book, Unwanted Advances, is, is really you know, bold and feminist and challenging. And I'm, I guess I'm a little bit afraid. Yeah, I'm afraid for that doing the same things that, that I might have done or that hundreds of generations of other guys might have done, you know, which is not a sexual assault, uh, previously has not been considered sexual assault, might end up getting my son uh, kicked out of college or, or thrown in jail one day because of the unknown factors. And so I, I always think it's dangerous to say, say the person, you know, that I'm more afraid for my boy than for my girl. Yeah, I hear it all the time now. But I'm going to teach her about men. I'm going to teach her about boundaries and speaking up and asserting herself. A boy in this situation is powerless if a, a woman decides after the fact that it was that, that the interaction was unwanted. He's he, there's nothing he could do. And, and, and once the, the yeah, and it's also just such a double standard because if they're going to decide that you cannot consent if you are under the influence of alcohol, well, what if both people are under the influence of alcohol? They probably are. And so the idea that it defaults to the woman, the sort of presumption of victimhood, not, not even the presumption of innocence, but the, the presumption of victimization, it just doesn't make any sort of logical sense on any sort of egalitarian level. It's, you know, it seems to be completely antithetical to any feminist approach. And that's where we're at. And, you know, 
again, we, you and I read a lot of the same stuff. I, I love, you know, you know, sort of behavioral economics books and Daniel Kahneman thinking fast and slow and uh, Jonah Lehrer, uh, how we decide. And humans are both logical and emotional. And if we're too logical, then we're like Spock and we have trouble making actual emotional connections with people. And if we're too emotional and we can't adhere to any sort of code of reason or internal consistently, it's very hard to have a conversation or be in a relationship with someone who lets their, their emotions, how they feel, override someone else's reality. And I do think there's an important like sort of nuanced discussion in this. But as you know, wading into these waters is really, really dangerous. And you just having this conversation, you know, again, I don't see anything that either you or I said that could get us, you know, double canceled. <laughs> but, uh, but the idea that we have to be careful around it seems almost absurd since we're just talking about reality. This is, again, no one's opinion. Now, would you use the naturalistic fallacy? Yeah. And it's absurd because we're both clearly coming from a place of good intention and good faith. I can't tell you the number of mothers of sons who have said to me, I'm terrified of sending my son to college and I'm even more terrified of uttering that sentence because it just automatically puts me into this bucket of people who are like, you know, rape apologists or, you know, apologizing on behalf of their sons. I mean, all of these discussions have just been reduced to memes and hashtags and slogans and just, you know, lines of inquiry that aren't making any inquiries at all. So anyway, but yeah, I just wanted to be clear. I'm 100% with you when it comes to being rational, being logical, being grown up about this, taking responsibility for yourself. I do, however, think that somebody like me maybe hasn't always really been aware of the difference between being 20 years old today, as opposed to in 1990. I mean, I had students talk about hooking up with people on Tinder, like from the community, an undergraduate who would use Tinder and then have some 30-year-old from the town come to the dorm room and there would be some sexual encounter and then she would feel gross about it. Like, that's a totally different kind of emotional equation than anything I or my peers had to deal with. So I do think it it is important to to accommodate that kind of experience in our thinking about all of this. And it's impossible to argue with that. And that's why, you know, that the, the tide is changing. And, and you know, I guess if it's, if it's obviously we create this, once again, this, this false dichotomy, where it, if it's between women's safety and a man saying, may I unhook your bra? Well, then obviously women's safety comes first. It's that we've gone so long without having to do this awkwardness. And again, awkwardness isn't the worst thing in the world. It's not going to end sex as we know it entirely. I just think it's so hard to enforce. Of course. And it's so hard to measure. This is, yeah, this is, this isn't, uh, talking about it is actually more unnatural than just doing it. <laughs> and so, and I have a friend who's a matchmaker who said that years ago and people get themselves in awkward, uh, unfortunate sexual circumstances, again, accepting sexual assault, but just, you know, things, things that we regret. She, she, I remember saying, I find it so interesting that people are more likely to have sex, exchange body fluids, than to talk about it. Right? We're, we're, we're willing to go through an experience rather than say, you know what, I don't feel good about this. <laughs> we're just, ah, sure. Also, I hear a lot, well, it was easier just to go ahead and have sex rather than try to get mm-hmm. out of it. Which I think we all recognize that to a certain extent. Uh, you know, you just you want to just kind of get through it. Okay. But for somebody to say, I really, truly do not know how to physically extricate myself from a situation where I am not being threatened. It's not like someone is preventing me from leaving. And I really, really want to get out of this. But I lack the vocabulary. I can't imagine how this scenario would go down, even if it is awkward. And so I went ahead and had sex. And then later I decided that because I didn't want to do it, I'm going to decide that this person assaulted me or there was misconduct here. Like that is really messed up. And it comes from an inability to deal with awkwardness. Like sometimes you're, right. you're just going to have to be awkward. And But again, that's so important for this moment, especially in, in as much as we're talking about cancel culture and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. We have to distinguish between I don't like something 
which is perfectly fair. Taste is, is 100% personal. I don't like something. And that thing that I don't like should never happen, should be illegal. Right? There's a total difference. That's why that the, the Aziz Ansari case was so interesting because you can totally see why she didn't like any of that and why that was all icky. But it's not criminal. And to, conf- no. to conflate the two when so much of sex is in that gray area, like 90% of sex is in that gray area where it is unspoken personal preference about what I like and what someone likes. And you don't hand someone a piece of paper with you with your preferences. It's all part of the exploration. And, and who among us? They sort of do hand a piece of paper with their preferences. I mean, we have, we are in. That's why I'm surprised you said I came around to being accepting of it. I still haven't. Okay. I'm accepting of, I am not going to sit there and say, you're stupid. If you want to say, can I do this? Can I do that? I also think that like, it's easy to make fun of that. And there's a sort of SNL sketch version of it. And it's probably not that silly. I think there's probably a way to do it that is integrated into a Mm -hmm. sexual moment and the rhythm of that. Okay. But I, I really, I see more and more really young people having very early sexual experiences with people who are in some cases complete strangers that they've been able to meet on these apps. And that's got to be a really scary situation. That's not the kind of thing that, that we had to deal with when we were in our 20s, for the most part. Unless we met somebody in a bar. But even then, we met them in a bar. You know, We met that person and we made a series of calculations as to whether or not to go home with them. And that's very different than ordering somebody up on Tinder. Yeah, I still feel like we're maybe conflating a, a couple different things, which is a level of personal safety. Like, there's like this illusion that you meet someone in a bar and it's somehow better, but you know him even less. You know, you know, you succumb to his looks and his charm. Nobody, nobody saw waiting for Mr. Goodbar. Obviously, yeah. No, I don't know if that illusion is just I've never seen a seventies movie. Yes. No, just the idea that meeting a guy at a bar after six drinks is safer than uh, conventional online dating. You read a profile, you email, you talk on the phone, um, you go on a, a conventional first date over dinner. It's not that you're not allowed to circumvent that process and swipe right and say, hey, what are you wearing? Want to come over? People do do that. But the medium itself doesn't create the problem. It just creates access. It just makes it easier for people mm-hmm. to hook up than being charming enough to pick up someone at a bar. But the behavior itself is not much different. Either you're going to act from a place of excitement and lust and keep your fingers crossed that you're, you're, you're safe, or you're going to be more cautious about it. So I don't know that people are, I think it's just happening in, in greater, greater volume. But I don't think that even study show it's not i don't think it's any more free love now i think people are having less sex now i do sometimes wonder if you're having 70 80 percent of your interactions on screens when you get into an in-person intimate encounter like your whole mode of communication has changed it's like you've got a code switch it's like you've got to start speaking a different language yeah and but that's why you know, again, I, I, you know, when I talk to, you know, academics and intellectuals and thought leaders, you know, just saying the word dating coach sometimes feels embarrassing. But I have been studying this one topic for two, two decades. And I feel like we think of dating and relationships in this different realm than everything else, right? Love is, is completely separate. And it's not. It is losing weight. It is job hunting. It is a discipline. It is a skill. It takes practice. The more you do anything, the better you get at it. You're a writer. You know, tell writers, write. <laughs> just, just write. Right? And so people think that they should just be able to, to divine, just to create lasting love. And sometimes people get lucky. You meet, you meet cute when you're 25 and you stay together for the next 60 years and you're a hell of a story. But the truth is it's another iterative process. And the more trial and error and failure you have, hopefully you learn from it. That's really the, my only qualification for this job is that I went out with 300 people before I got married. And so I've really gotten to see a lot of make a lot of mistakes, see a lot of mistakes, and try to look at the whole endeavor more objectively. But if you start to see, see dating as a skill, then yeah, it shouldn't be terribly surprising that texting doesn't always translate into great real life behavior. And we need to get our reps and have regular 
dinner dates that don't go well and awkward sex. And it's, it's part of the learning process. You just don't snap your fingers and get happily married. And I think everybody expects this to have to be different than it is. Yeah, that's true. So I'm going to give you the chance to uh, lecture me briefly because we, we've often joked um, that I, uh, you know, I, I am single now. I was married and, and divorced. And by the way, I am pretty committed to being single. I, I always feel like I'm a sort of naturally, no, it's not even sort of, I, I am naturally an alone person. I actually did not want to get married until I was 40. I met my ex-husband when we were 36 and I just had this almost like OCD thing where like, I don't want to get married till I'm 40. And we ended up getting married when I was 39, but okay, close enough. And divorced by the time I was about 46, 47, very amicable divorce. But I have just found it, I can't even say difficult to date because I've barely tried. I just don't want to do it. I just don't like doing it. Like, it's not a good use of my time. But uh, you're not going to have me read you the riot act about that. It, think Again, think of it like anything else. If you know, the, the concept of, of fat shaming or something like that, right? Someone, someone could do that and someone could, you know, tisk tisk at all the single women who choose to live alone. I, I'm not in the business of doing that. I'm, if you're happy, keep doing it. If someone is happy uh, being obese and doesn't see the need to diet or work <laughs> out. Or, great, great analogy. <laughs> now I know. It, it is absolutely your, your business. It's not wrong. The only the thing that I take issue with, and it's and again, it's not about you. I know you want it to be about you, but it's not yeah, about you. Yeah, everything's about it's, me. Go ahead. Yes. It's when someone swears they're happy being alone, but they're not. That's right. that's their defensive posture to justify the fear of dating and rejection. And right, so we say, oh, I'm perfectly fine. Everything's good the way it is. I love being single. I love my freedom. I love my friends and my apartment. So people get really wrapped up in their story and they justify. And then I pose them this hypothetical. If I snap my fingers and I guaranteed that you'd be happy for the rest of your life with one man, would you take it? And I've never met anybody who said no. Okay. But if I wouldn't say no to that, but I'm not sure. See, this is the thing. Where do I sort of fall off the logic ledge here because I wouldn't say no to that, but I also think that that's so unlikely that it's not a good use of my time to make the effort to have that be a possibility. Are you ready for some dating coaching? In this conversation right now? Yeah, in this conversation right now. Okay, go ahead. If I was your client, what would you say to me? I have a lot of clients who speak the same language that, that you do, and it makes perfect logical sense. If it has never worked out before, why would I expect it to work out the next time? It's so exceedingly unlikely that I could find a good man who I'm attracted to, who treats me well, that I could get along with. It's just so astronomically, then why even bother? Right? And I have a, a, a week in my Love You program. It's called Why Bother Syndrome. <laughs> it is okay. specific, to specifically address that issue. And so the, the self-help term, not my term, is called a limiting belief. And we all have limiting beliefs. Men are after just one thing. There are no good men left. Men always cheat. They're, these are limiting beliefs are things that are partially true, but not totally true. So as I said, if I agree with you, 90% of guys are worthless to you. Let's look within the 10%. And all you need, Megan, is one, one to be happy. No, that's true. Even half. Then I, then I see, again, and, and it's a worldview. It's not a right or a wrong. I take the optimistic worldview, I take the abundant worldview, I take the glass half full worldview, but I understand why people say it's half empty, there's no good men, what's the point, it causes nothing but pain, and that's their lived experience, and I can't argue with it. It's just one version of the story, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So one who says, I would rather be alone than to put myself into that position again, and can be happily alone. And it sounds like you're, you are happily alone. Yeah. Yeah. That's a perfectly viable lifestyle choice. If you could see, I'm gesticulating here. I do a lot of gesticulating. If we're ranking things, you know, like, you know, my hands are, are going up. The bottom rung is unhappily married and unhappily yeah. single. And the right. middle rung is happily single. And the top rung is happily married. Okay. But here's the problem. Now, I don't know. Listeners are probably 
not interested in this. Maybe they are. Maybe some diehard fans. We are, we are talking for ourselves right now. Okay. I don't, who knows? I just don't want to live with anybody. And so there's this idea, okay, you have a partner. The idea is to build a life together. I don't want to build a life with somebody else. I want to build my life and then have the right person just like come into it as I see fit. Yes. That's terrible. No, but that, I really feel that makes me undateable. Like that is unfair. It is selfish. It's juvenile. No, no, it illuminates something. It's not wrong, right? So again, let's not make, you don't get anywhere making someone wrong. Let's say that's, that's your perception. That's your reality. That's fine. So that changes your choice of men. Point taken. So Evan, I'm going to close out the conversation by posing to you the question that I pose to everybody on this podcast. What do you think is the problem with everything? We've been talking about this kind of gestalt of frustrations and complications and hypocrisies and ways that people kind of get things wrong. So when you think about the world, what do you think is really the main problem? What do people do to screw up their lives or screw up their thinking and just make things not as good as they should be? What I hope that anybody who listened this long gleaned from our conversation is that the most important thing we could have is uh, empathy. And so I think, I think there's a distinct lack of empathy, which translates into a lack of understanding, right? Men failing to understand women, their actual problems, their actual reality, women failing to understand men, what they go through. And when we don't have empathy for the opposite sex and translate that into our own romantic partners, you know, if, you, if, if a husband doesn't understand his wife, the challenges she faces, and uh, a wife doesn't understand the, the challenges her husband faces, what hope do we have as individuals, as couples, as a society? So the more we can you know, first seek to understand and, and, and see where someone else is coming from and at least find some measure of truth or validation in their point of view, perhaps the less anger and demonizing and dismissing we can do of each other. Yeah, I think that's really well said, especially because I've been thinking about the word empathy a lot lately, and I feel like it's started to lose its meaning. It's kind of tossed around a lot, especially in the realm of virtue signaling and people mm-hmm. kind of piling on each other like, oh, well, you lack empathy or you know, you've, you've lost your sense of empathy. Well, they're not really talking about actual empathy. They're just kind of using it as shorthand for something much shallower. So I'm glad that you you took the time. I don't want to close yet because I know we got to wrap up, but just on this, this empathy thing, I, mean, I think we can mm-hmm. empathize and put ourselves in their shoes and see why they feel what they feel. And also at the same time, point out the limits of living with such a narrow worldview where you demonize all the members of, of the opposite sex, right? So you could understand how someone got there and still be critical of the way they're choosing to deal with life. And I, th- I don't think it, it means you're, you're not uh, empathetic any more than if your, your mom or your sister, you know, turned to you and said they had a problem. And you said, well, you got to do this. Like you could love someone and still offer constructive criticism and yeah. constructive is designed to help. It's not designed to hurt. The problem is people get hurt by constructive criticism. So if you tell someone, and if I tell a client, hey, if you're going to be more effective in dating, you may want to do X, Y, and Z. And she takes it as a personal affront or an attack instead of coming from a place of love. I'm really trying to help you. Then again, we're, we're sort of lost. So you need to have a measure of trust. And that's what we've lost in social media interactions. If, if we have trust, I could say things to you because we have a friendship that if some stranger were to say, you'd be like, fuck you, dude. Yeah. And I think we need to trust people to be smart enough to understand what we're saying. I think there's a lot of willful misconstrual going on in social media and in public discourse in general. So something like empathy, I think people say it when they mean sometimes pity, sometimes Mm -hmm. sort of compassion in a kind of shallow sense. I think sometimes they use it when they really mean, let's not treat this person like an adult. Uh, not all the time, but sometimes. And I, to, to your point, I, there's nothing more respectful than giving someone an honest, constructive feedback and treating them like an adult and treating them like an intelligent person who can hear what you're saying and, and sort of hold two opposing thoughts at the same time. And, and I think that most human beings are smart enough to be able to do that, but somehow it's fallen out of fashion to, uh, to assume as much. And it's, we're expected 
what I learned um, the hard way and continue to learn the hard way is you don't get the right to give the construct of criticism unless you've provided empathy and validation first. You got to get the order right. Because if you just get the criticism and all people hear is the criticism, now you're part of the problem. If they know you're on their side, then you have, yeah, you have a fighting chance. And that's why I'm, again, I'm a dating coach for women who choose dating coaching. If you think the only problem is men, well, guess what? Six months of dating coaching later, men are going to be the same. New York City is going to be the same. Tinder is going to be the same. We can't fix any of that. If the problem is just men. So people who can provide validation, right? Uh, and again, it's what we want our president to do. Have some empathy. How, you know, Bill Clinton feels your pain and Barack Obama sings, you know, Amazing Grace, uh, you know, after the shootings. You need someone who could actually provide validation for people's pain and then try to find a way out. And criticism's really easy. We all criticize each, each other. Everybody has an opinion about it. But the thing that I think is lacking is empathy. Uh, left empathizing with right, right empathizing with left men, empathizing with women and vice versa. The more we can step outside of our own shoes, we get into that sort of classically liberal thing, right? Empathy for others who are living different lives. Evan, thank you so much. It's really great to talk to you and um, to be continued, I hope. My pleasure entirely. You've been listening to the Unspeakable Podcast with Megan Daum. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for more information, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com and you can listen there too. Please consider supporting the podcast on its brand new Patreon page, where you'll find all kinds of goodies, including an interview I did with Chelsea Handler last year, and that's available only for subscribers. As it happens, Chelsea and I talk about dating, among lots of other things, and Evan Mark Katz listened to the interview and thought we desperately needed an intervention. You can decide for yourself by visiting patreon.com slash theunspeakable. Anyway, I hope you'll tune in next week. I'll announce the guest very soon on the website and all the usual social media spaces. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY. Recovery now.